Hello, everybody. I'm Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party and Socialist Party candidate for president in 2020. And this podcast, Green Socialist Notes, is about continuing to educate and organize around the eco-socialist program that Angela Walker and I ran on in 2020. So the big news this morning is uh, Trump announced on his social media uh, that he thinks he's going to be arrested Tuesday uh, in relation to the uh, Stormy Daniels hush money. And of course, Trump announced it because his campaign plan is to run as being the victim of the quote unquote radical left Democratic prosecutors. And he's got a point, you know, his poll numbers went up after he was impeached both times. And after the FBI searched his Mar-a-Lago residence for classified documents. And he's facing more serious indictments. You got the election tampering in Georgia, which is a criminal case. You got the bank and insurance fraud and being investigated by the New York Attorney General. That's a civil case. There are federal charges on the mishandling of those classified document uh, documents, which would include unauthorized retention of national security secrets, concealing or destroying government documents, and obstruction of justice. Those are serious charges. And then there's a slew of federal charges related to the January 6th attempt to overthrow the presidential election. And those would involve criminal charges, including insurrection and conspiracy to defraud the United States, as well as election fraud. So he's, you know, well, my first question is, why did it take him so long? It's 26 months since that uh, January 6th attempted coup. Nearly a thousand of the rank and file participants in that have been charged. Two thirds of them have already been convicted and sentenced. Uh, But the leaders who planned this thing uh, are still walking around free. And there are dozens of them. Besides Trump, there's Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, and half a dozen of these pro Trump clown lawyers. Uh, You got Donald Trump Jr. and his fiancee, Kimberly Guilfoyle, who was formerly a Fox News. Uh, talking head. Uh, And then you got all the political operatives and Trump staffers who were involved in plotting this coup, including Steve Bannon, General or retired General Michael Flynn, retired Colonel Phil Waldron, Roger Stone, the dirty trickster, Alex Jones, the conspiracy nut, Mark Meadows, his former uh, uh, chief of staff, Peter Navarro, and Virginia Thomas, the wife of the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. And then there are all those Republican politicians and officials who organized and submitted false electors from seven states in in trying to overturn this election. And, you know, are any of these people going to be brought to justice for attempting to overthrow a presidential election? Uh, You know, the Justice Department's moving slow. So Trump is running as a victim. He's calling himself, he doesn't quite use these words, but he's presenting himself is the white victim of a witch hunt uh, by people he calls racist prosecutors, referring to black prosecutors. The Fulton County DA Fannie Willis, the Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg, and the New York Attorney General Letitia James. And that's how he's going to run. Now, this legal process is going to take years to play out, and Trump is going to use it to mobilize support uh, from his white racist base, and he's going to raise money off it too, uh, just running as the victim. And that may be enough for Trump to win the Republican nomination again. So what this Trump drama, I think, is going to mean for us is that it's going to be harder than ever for us to get public attention for our policies to address the life and death issues that we face, like the climate emergency and our eco-socialist Green New Deal like the extreme and growing economic inequality, which kills people because they can't pay for medical expenses and so forth, and our solution of an economic bill of rights. And then the peace policies we want to advocate to reverse the new nuclear arms race, to oppose all imperialism, and promote human rights and democracy around the world. Uh, With this other drama going on, it's going to be as harder than ever to get those things raised, particularly with the Democrats, running against Trump as the criminal, and thus avoiding accountability for failing to address the crisis of climate and inequality and war. 
uh, and they will call on progressive-minded people to vote for the center-right neoliberal Democrats to stop the far-right neo-fascist Republicans. And that puts us in the spoiler role. And it's built into our single-member district winner-take-all electoral system, but with the far-right extremism of the Trump Republican, that makes it harder than, uh, than ever for us because uh, a lot of people, progressive amount of people, are going to vote for those Democrats just to stop those Republicans, which means I think we've also got to really focus on solutions to the spoiler problem to create an inclusive, a multi, an inclusive multi-party democracy. And those reforms would include fair ballot access, ranked choice voting, and proportional representation. I think that's what we're up against. So this news today about Trump is just, uh, I guess, a foreshadowing of what we're going to see. You know, the, already uh, the Republicans seem to be closing ranks around Republican from uh, around Trump from what we've been hearing from, like the uh, Speaker of the House, McCarthy, and some other members of the Republican caucus in Congress. Another piece of news which shows how dangerous this far right is, is that yesterday the Wyoming state legislature uh, passed legislation banning medication abortion pills. And the governor immediately signed it. And there's another bill that passed that will criminalize all abortions under all circumstances. And that uh, the governor will let go through. Um, so we should not underestimate the influence of the far right. Some people say, oh, you got Trump derangement syndrome, and there's really no difference between the Democrats and Republicans. There is a difference. And uh, on the other hand, the Democrats don't have solutions, so we need to promote our own. And then the other thing I'll, I'll say a few words about is this banking crisis, which uh, last week it was when I spoke on this podcast, it was just the Silicon Valley Bank. Now we've got, and that was a tech sector focused bank. Now we've got the Silvergate Bank and the Signature Bank, which were both cryptocurrency focused banks. Uh, First Republic, which is a private wealth management bank uh, focused on these tech sector multimillionaires. It's based in San Francisco. And then Credit Suisse out of you know Switzerland. But that was already troubled by fraud and money laundering scandals. And its uh, balance sheet was troubled. And all of these stem from the Fed policy of higher interest rates, which is, of course, hurting the economy, but also now the banking sector. And these Fed policies, I mean, we've talked about this before. They're not going to really address the inflation because the inflation we got now is driven by supply constraints after the COVID lockdowns and the Ukraine war. And that affects energy, food. Uh, Chinese manufacturing goods, a major portion of our imports, uh, and then housing. The rents are, you know, been jacked up. Uh, there hasn't been affordable housing built. So all these things are supply constraints. This inflation is not driven by a wage price spiral, where raising interest rates to increase employment, depress wages, might slow inflation. That's not what's going on here, yet that's what the Fed is doing. And, you know, the Fed Chairman Powell and the whole Fed Governing Board should have seen, and maybe they did, but they just let it go, that by raising interest rates, um, a lot of these banks invest depositors' monies in treasuries, which have had low interest. Now with the interest rates higher, the banks themselves and the depositors want to get their money out of these low interest treasuries and reinvest them in the newer, higher interest treasuries. But that creates a liquidity squeeze because the bank's got to sell those old low interest bonds whose price goes down as the interest rate goes up and people want to buy these other higher interest rate bonds. Uh, so they're, they're having to sell them uh, at a low value, really at a loss for them in order to have the cash to meet their depositors' demands to get their cash back. And that's called a liquidity squeeze. And that's why some of these banks have got to the point where they couldn't meet that. And they've had to be uh, sent to bankruptcy or taken over. Um, and, you know, the Powell and the rest of the Fed governors, they've tended to be for deregulating the banking sector. And now they're paying the price for that. So I think that they are making our case for public banks. 
that operate at cost as public utilities, not for profit, that would remove the incentives on these banks to make risky investments that could yield higher returns, but also risk failure and, and losing that money. And instead of bailing out the banks, which is happening again, uh, we should let these public bank or these private banks fail, take their good assets, turn them into public banks, and then uh, have them, you know, direct their investments toward uh, social and environmental priorities and stay away from this, this you know, high risk investments. And in fact, it really makes the case for socializing the biggest banks. Uh, whose failure would wreck the economy or require a massive bailout like it did in 2008. The top five banks in this country have almost half of the commercial banking assets. We're talking about J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, and U.S. Bank Corp. And with that big public banking sector as a yardstick, it would force the commercial banks to compete with that public bank or public banks in terms of credit and consumer service standards. And we'd have a lot of assets that we could direct toward social and environmental improvements like affordable housing and renewable energy. But going back to Trump, uh, you know, we're gonna have to fight to even get ourselves heard on these demands because we're headed into another presidential election and federal elections, House, and, and it, it trickles down to the state and local level where the Democrats are going to say the Republicans are fascists, you got to vote for us, even if you don't like us much. So a lot of people that might want to vote green are going to feel compelled to vote for the Democrats. So that's a dilemma we face, and that's why I think uh, we need to focus on the democracy demands. The Democrats failed to even secure the voting rights and election protection legislation when they had both houses of Congress in the last session. And now they don't have the votes to do that. Of course, they would have had to lift the filibuster and Democratic leadership from Biden on down didn't really focus on that. Schumer, too. Um, and now, you know, we're in the situation we're in. So we've got to call the Democrats out for not being so damn pro-democracy. And the Greens got to lead on this. So that's my little commentary for this week. I'm looking forward to your questions and answers and, and comments. Vicki Corden, the Fed is hurting the average person with higher interest rates. Yes, it is. And it's not fighting inflation, as I, I talked about before. And But the Fed is not there for the average person. They're there for the, you know, the Fed is really governed by the banks. It's a sort of public-private partnership, and the banks have a big role in determining who is on the regional boards, which in turn determine who's on the uh, federal board with the president appointing the chair. And uh, so it's really serving the big banking interests, not the people. <clears throat> Amy L. Sachs, the role of corporate media in the ascendancy of Trump almost makes it seem like media consolidation was a crap idea and Dems were wrong to take part in it. Yeah, I wouldn't even say almost. I mean, the Democrats played a big role, uh, particularly in the Clinton administration. There was a bill passed in 1996, which uh, allowed or removed a lot of the regulations we had on media, which limited cross ownership of different forms of media in a media market like print media, radio, TV, um, allowed the consolidation so that, you know, we have... I don't have the numbers in front of me, but, you know, half a dozen big media corporations controlling most of the large broadcast media and print media in the country. And uh, and then, of course, they uh, basically gave Trump, what was it, $6 billion? They, they calculated a free advertising or the equivalent of advertising by the way they covered the 2016 election. And, you know, when they were called on it, I think it was the head of NBC said, he was CNN said, yeah, but Trump, you know, sells. People want to watch so they can sell advertising. So they they play, a, they, they have a lot of responsibility for lifting Trump's profile up. And it's going to happen again. They're, they're not going to be able to keep their eyes off Trump 
is he plays the victim and these uh, criminal and civil cases go forward. It's going to be in the news. And so, you know, it's a real challenge for us to find ways to get our message out there and get people to vote for what they want instead of what they don't want, the Democrats. Because there are a lot of progressives that are for what we are for, you know, the Medicare for all, getting rid of student debt, the eco-socialist Green New Deal. Maybe they just want a Green New Deal, uh, but we can explain to them why it needs to be a, a socialist Green New Deal. Um, and all these other programs. And, you know, the, the problem with American politics is that what the people want, what public opinion says we want, doesn't get translated into public policy. And that's structured into our winner-take-all single-member district election system, which marginalizes anybody outside the two-party system that challenges them as spoilers. Of course, we got an answer for that, and we've really got to put that forward. Ranked choice voting is growing. I, I get a Google alert on ranked choice voting. Um, Connecticut's considering it. Minnesota's considering it. Many cities are considering it. This thing is spreading, and we need to help spread it. And then extend it from just ranked choice voting for single member districts, which is still a winner take all system, and third parties are still going to be marginalized, into for the legislative bodies, proportional ranked choice voting, where you rank your choices for multi-member districts. And the winning threshold is not, you know, the majority for one person. It depends on the size number of candidates in that district. Like a nine uh, member district, the winning threshold would be 10%. So Greens would certainly get one or two uh, representatives in most districts that had nine candidates on the ballot. And you still rank your choices. I mean, for the voter, it's as simple as, as you know, regular ranked choice voting for a single seat. You just rank your choices, one, two, three, and so on. So that's something we've really got to push forward if we're going to, you know, get our voice heard and then get our representation in government in proportion to the support we really have for our policies. Scout Trooper 164, what do you think of Biden demanding TikTok be sold or banned? I don't know if it's smart since the app was known to spy on you regardless if the map app was on and it seems like hypocrisy. Yeah, I haven't looked into the details of, you know, TikTok and I think you're right, you know, even if uh, the Chinese are not major owners of it, um, Whoever owns it can still spy on us. I mean, what we need, and, and the EU has, you know, some legislation that does this that protects your privacy and makes your data your property, not the property of the uh, tech company that collected it. I think that's where we got to go. And then who owns the app uh, is not such a big deal because we own our data. I think that's where we should be going. I think. Uh, you know, just changing the ownership of TikTok without changing TikTok's ability to collect our private data doesn't really solve the problem. And maybe it prevents the Chinese from getting that data, but uh, we don't want, you know, the corporate interests to have that data or our government to have that data. So it seems like it's not really getting at the problem. <coughs> Frankie Lee. I hear that even credit unions could be in trouble as the recession gets worse. Is there any way poor people can secure financially, even with earned benefits? Well, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation insures your deposits up to $250,000. And that's a substantial hike since 2008 when before that it was $100,000. So even if you're very wealthy and you've got your money in bank deposits, spread them out among banks instead of having more than 250,000 in any one bank. So I think, um, now you say poor people. Um, yeah, your, your deposits should be uh, insured. And if the federal government can't cover your deposits, yeah, nobody's safe. Um, but I don't think we're anywhere near that. So, um, you know, besides the problem we're having right now with the banking sector, we do have a huge debt overhang in, in global debt. And a lot of these countries in the global south 
and that would include Ukraine, uh, cannot afford to pay the debts they've taken on. And they owe them, you know, to institutions like the International Monetary Fund, to governments, you know, like Ukraine is trying to get out of $15 billion that Russia wants them to pay back. Uh, when in 2014, when, when they had the change of government, just before that, Yanukovych had opted into loans from Russia, um, which the Ukrainians are arguing in court were coerced on Ukraine and they're trying to get out of them. You're going to see this move by a lot of countries. Um, Zambia is trying to renegotiate its debt with China right now. And of course, the Western creditors are the biggest creditors. So uh, a lot of that debt is not going to be paid. And when it's not paid, that's going to put some of these banks in trouble. So that hasn't come to fruition yet. But if we do go into a recession, uh, that may you know, create a new you know, banking crisis that's much more serious than what we're seeing right now, which seems to have affected some banks uh, that were in uh, you know, venture capital for the Silicon Valley Bank or cryptocurrency for the Signature and uh, Silvergate banks. Um, Republic Wealth was tech money. And apparently there was a panic there when, when Silicon Valley Bank went down. Uh, that was tech, tech money mainly. Um, and then Credit, Credit Suisse, the other one, is uh, in a different category because it's already shaky because of all these scandals around fraud and money laundering. And, you know, people, when they saw what was happening with the banks in the U.S., said maybe we better get out of Credit Suisse, too, whose balance sheet uh, is not the strongest. But that, those are just, you know, on the margins. You know, they're like the first, they're like the, um, you know, the tide is just a little bit out. And you can see who's naked. But when the tide goes fully out, uh, a lot of these banks are going to be naked. And, and then, then we could be in big trouble. But going back to your question, um, if, you know, deposits less than $250,000 should be safe. And uh, <clears throat> that's all I can say. Scout Trooper 164, Breaking Points has stated that Michigan has rolled back an anti-union law. What do you think? Um, have they done it? I know they were moving that way. The uh, Democrats took back control of Michigan. They passed a right-to-work law um, when the Republicans had control. And I knew they were moving that way. I didn't know they'd, they'd done it. I hadn't seen that news. But if they have, good. Michigan, you know, a lot of the... The unions that we have, like the United Auto Workers, you know, got started there. And uh, to go to a right-to-work state was was kind of a shock. So if they've rolled that back, uh, that's a good step. Scout Trooper 164, Howie, toxic chemicals were found after the Ohio train derailment. What are your thoughts? Um, well, I think, first of all, we should take these railroads also into public ownership and run them as public utilities. They've been underinvesting in their infrastructure, their, you know, both the, the rail cars and, and uh, engines and the, the rails themselves. Uh, and then they're trying to operate them like on one, one man crews uh, when you need at least two people to be safe on, you know, operating one of these you know, big freight trains, particularly when they have uh, hazardous, uh, you know, cargo, like was the case in East Palestine, Ohio. So that's the first thing. Um, and we need to strengthen the regulations or restore the regulations that Trump uh, got rid of. Um, and then, you know, Biden and the, his administration were slow to get to Ohio and tell people what they were going to do about it. Um, and then, you know, I think mistakes were made, like uh, burning off those toxic chemicals instead of containing them and disposing of them safely. They just put it in the atmosphere and uh, we're getting reports that it's, you know, affecting people, they're breathing, it's uh, precipitating into uh, water, uh, groundwater, um, just a lot of problems with that. So, Another thing that this brings to mind is a lot of those chemicals are related to plastics production, uh, which we really should phase out. 
there's no way to really uh, we're not we're not recycling most of it. Uh, and when you do, it's you know in high energy. We got to get back to containers that are inert, like glass, or biodegradable, like paper, and uh, <clears throat> stop relying on chemicals for packaging in particular. I mean, plastics for packaging in particular, and come up with safe substitutes. So those are some of my thoughts that, that come out of that train derailment. Via email, thoughts on Illinois passing a five days off for any reason law for all workers in the state. Uh, is that paid off, paid time off or just uh, days you can take without getting fired? Uh, either is better than not having those days, uh, but we should have, and this should be federal. There should be, uh, you know, it's different in different countries, paid family leave, okay or paid personal leave. Uh, yeah, that that should be standard. And five days, I, I don't think that's enough. I think actually it should be more. Um, I'm trying to remember now, you know, I think France, where they're really up in arms over raising the retirement age from 62 to 64, where in this country is 67. Uh, but the millions have been out in the streets, and Macron tried to force that through. He knew he couldn't get it through the lower house of the legislature there. So they use this constitutional provision enables him to enact it by kind of like executive order in this country. And people are up in arms about that. There have been submitted uh, uh, for a vote of no confidence. Uh, and it's across the spectrum. On the left are the Greens, the Socialists, and the Communists. They have a union for social and ecological something. Um, they've had a coalition in the last election, although they're it looks like the next election, they're going to each run on their own. Um, but they are supporting this. Uh, some of the center parties are supporting it. And, and even, uh, well, really not surprisingly, the, the national rally, you know, Marine Le Pen's far right party is supporting it. So Macron's in trouble. Uh, the center probably can't hold. If they uh, vote no confidence, his government falls. So, you know, uh, I, I tweeted out earlier this week about how uh, the leader of the Greens had called, you know, first days of January that, you know, people in France need to get out in the streets to protest this coming pension reform. And they did in the millions. Uh, and a lot of traditional rivalries between the unions, they dropped all that. They came together to pull out people. And Macron still went ahead. So people are still back in the streets. They're angry. And their representatives in the legislature may overthrow Macron. So that was a tangent from the question, which isn't up there anymore. But what was the question about? It was about um, how did it had it wasn't retirement. What was the question? Chris, you, I think you posted the question. And maybe he has his baby. He has a baby while he does this. Oh, five days paid off in Illinois. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, these kind of, you know, labor regulations, standards um, are really low in this country. And I was mentioning France, besides the pension issue, I believe they have six weeks paid leave. Um, and what do we got? We got nothing. You know, you may have it in your union contract. Some states have something like that, but at the federal level, we got nothing. And we're told vote for the Democrats because they're not the extreme right Republicans. Okay, the Democrats were in power. Did they do anything like this? No. I mentioned abortion at the top of the you know this hour. And the Democrats had a chance in the last session and in the session, Obama's first session, where they had both houses by even stronger majorities to pass what's now called the Women's Health, Re Health Reproduction Act or Reproductive Health Act, which would have codified Roe v. Wade at the federal level. And that is enormously popular. You know, two-thirds of the people in the country are for that. And because the Democrats didn't do that, now we've got states like Wyoming and many other states banning abortion. 
And that's really not so much about the fetuses, like they say. It's about oppressing women. It's about, you know, basically subordinate them, subordinating them to patriarchy. And, uh, you know, we've got to have an alternative. The status quo is not going to meet our needs. And yes, the Trump Republicans are a danger, uh, but so are the Democrats. Maybe not the extreme immediate danger, but uh, we got crises, like I mentioned, you know, climate, inequality, war, and the Democrats are not solving those problems. Not to mention how home, housing. I mean, homelessness is skyrocketing because of high rents. I mean, just here in Syracuse, I, they had an article about the degree of homelessness. It's never been so high because the rents are too damn high and people are being forced out, you know, because what they used to pay, you know, maybe six or $700 for, if, you know, before the COVID crisis and now being asked to pay $1,500 for a beat up old apartment uh, in dilapidated housing. That's, and they can't afford that. And so it's not just people, you know, who've got problems like alcoholism or drug addiction. It's families, you know, who got jobs and are working. They're just low-wage jobs. They can't pay the rent. They're going homeless. It's happening all over the country. And what have the damn Democrats done about that? The Republicans don't want to do anything about it. The Democrats give it lip service, but they don't do anything. So we can't afford either of those parties. Emil Sachs, Dems are too busy condemning socialism. <laughs> Laugh out loud. Yes. Great job there. Bernie, you really turned everything around for us. I'm not sure what colon P means. That's uh, that's one I haven't learned. But, um, yeah, they passed the resolution. The Republicans introduced it, and a high percentage of the congressional Democrats joined in uh, saying that, uh, you know, socialism was the biggest enemy we face, and We'll never have socialism in America. And, uh, you know, it was just a sense of the House resolution. But, you know, why, uh, if you're a Democrat, you know, uh, back up Republican messaging um, and attack your left wing, who claims to be Democratic socialists, you know, like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Jamal Bowman, uh, you know, and... Uh, uh, Talita Rashid. Um, so instead of defending their own members, they they attack them uh, because the people that run the Democratic Party, which are the the corporate neoliberals, they don't want those uh, progressive Democrats there, except maybe to make the Democratic Party look better to some people than it really is. And so, uh, yeah, the Dems the Dems are not helping. Frankie Lee, what do you think the real reason Dems haven't codified Roe, which the voters want? Uh, I think the real reason is not really a priority. And cynics say, and they may be right, that some of the Democrats anyway don't want that resolved because it gives them a campaign issue. Uh, and I'm pretty cynical about the Democrats, and I think maybe that's true for some of them, but as a whole... I think it was because it wasn't a priority. Most of these Democrats are men, and it's just not a high priority for them in the, in the House. And, uh, you know, the women who have led this fight in the House and the Democratic caucus, uh, you know, they basically begin li given lip service by those male Democrats. I just think it wasn't a priority for them. Um, and I think maybe they also didn't really believe the Republicans would actually go through with uh, this, they got it through the Supreme Court, you know, uh, making abortion uh, not something that's protected uh, by the Roe v. Wade decision. So um, I think it's, you know, my guess is it's, it's just not a high priority for most of the Democrats. And some of them probably want to keep it on the table as an issue they can rally the troops around.
Vicki Gordon, I'm afraid the recession will be used by Republicans to blame the Democrats and try to win election 2024. I think you're right, Vicki. I think uh, the Republicans are rooting for a recession right now because then they got a campaign issue to beat the Democrats up on. And, uh, you know, the, the Republicans aren't helping if they uh, keep pushing on this debt ceiling uh, to the point where investors get nervous and start making moves that undermine the economy. Because uh, if we don't, you know, if we default on what we've already, you know, what we owe for what we've already spent, which is what the debt ceiling is talking about, um, then the whole world financial system is in trouble. Because the U.S. has been, you know, the place where people park their money, that you know, the, the uh, buying treasuries is the, you know, safest investment seen around the world. But if the U.S. is not going to pay on its debts, that includes the treasuries. And so that money is going to flee elsewhere. And then it'll really wreck the economy. And I don't think the Republicans want to wreck it that bad, but they especially their, you know, extremists in the Freedom Caucus are willing to risk that. Um, and of course, if that's what happens, uh, you know, then the Democrats and Republicans will be trying to blame each other because the Republicans will have precipitated the, uh, you know, the default when we go over the debt ceiling and, and, uh, and then the Democrats will say, well, the Republicans did it. Um, and the Republicans will blame the Democrats for spending so much money. So, you know, that, I, I think what you're fearing is, is something to fear. Uh, even without the debt ceiling being broached, um, you know, there, there is a reason to believe we may be headed for a recession. So um, I think you got it. That's what's going to that, that's going to be part of the argument in 2024. It's going to be an issue. Violet Content Boutique. Howie, considering Marianne Williamson's progressive policy goals, do you think it might help both Greens and her for the Green Party to endorse and support her? No, I don't think so. She's never supported uh, third party politics. She's always been oriented to the Democratic Party. Uh, I don't think we can trust her if, if you know, she she's not going to run a, a third party challenge and be called the spoiler. That would kind of hurt her brand that she's been building for many years. Uh, plus, you know, you may have heard this has come out a lot in the last week. She, her former staff people from her 2020 campaign said she was very abusive uh, toward her staff, which is not something I think we want to, uh, you know, sort of overlook when we pick our candidate for 2024. Um, and Williamson's policies are progressive. That's true. You know, they're they're in the Bernie Sanders lane, but they're not anti-capitalist. She's not really talking about changing the system. She's assuming we, we can elect, you know, progressive Democrats to make some progressive reforms, which I think is a naive assumption. Just take the Medicare for all or single payer health care issue. You know, Democrats promised that in four states where they got the majority in the legislature and the governorship. Hawaii, California, Vermont, and New York. And when they got the power, they didn't implement the program. So again, that's why I think it's it's really not smart to think you can get these progressive policy goals through because the Democrats have the power. Um, I think, we, you know, we could get Medicare for all through if we had a mass movement and we were running candidates against the Democrats, taking serious votes, and they figured that they better pass it in order to stay in office. I mean, that kind of pressure uh, might move the Democrats to do it. But right now, uh, the mass movement isn't there and the electoral challenge isn't there either. You know, Greens are doing it here and there, but it's not at the scale that's scaring the Democrats enough to adopt a policy that their corporate leadership uh, opposes. Sandman 95, do you think Jill Stein's infamous meeting with Putin will give the Green Party a bad name and turn voters off to the party, especially now with what Putin has done? Um, yeah, I hear, I hear from voters about that. And I try to explain that, um, 
you know, and this is what Jill has told me. Um, she went to that RT uh, 10 year anniversary uh, because she thought she could get her message across to people in Russia, including government officials. And her message was, you know, cut the military budgets, put the money into, uh, into um, climate action and human needs and uh, everybody will benefit and also um, stop escalating in Syria. And, uh, you know, she talked about that in, in some side sessions. Um, but actually, when we debated this, and I was asked about this in her 2016 campaign, should she go to this meeting? Uh, one of the people said they could take a picture and it would overwhelm everything else she did there. And that's what happened. It was taken by Sputnik. Putin wasn't at the dinner the whole time. He sat down for a few minutes at that table and Sputnik, you know, snapped the picture and put it out on the Internet. Um, and I think, you know, that was a setup. That's my opinion. Uh, she, you know, General Flynn was across the table. She didn't know who he was. Most of the other people around her uh, weren't speaking English. Peskov, the spokesperson for the Russian Federation, was seated next to her, but she said they, they didn't talk. Um, so I, I'm just basically saying uh, that picture really looks bad. And it's, you know, her role in it is not as bad as the picture looks. But people are concerned, particularly now that she's uh, basically saying the U.S. should not send arms to Ukraine to defend themselves from the Russian invasion. And then people say, see, she was sitting there in Russia, and now look what she's saying. Um, so the Green Party's got an issue. And, you know, we had a vote on a resolution in the National Committee to uh, stop arms to Ukraine, stop sanctions against Russia, and call for negotiations, which in this context means a ceasefire and negotiations where Russia, you know, is sitting on the lands it occupies of Ukraine in the Donbass and southern Ukraine and, and, and Crimea. And, of course, the Ukrainians don't accept that because their family and friends and compatriots are experiencing the Russian occupation, which involves these filtration uh, processes where they find out how loyal you are to Russia. And if you're not, you may be detained, tortured, raped, executed. Uh, children are being abducted and, and brought to Russia to be brought up as Russian patriots. The International Criminal Court uh, indicted Putin and the head of their uh, children's rights session, section uh, or council, uh, Maria Lova Belova, uh, were indicted for this, you know, uh, crime of abducting these children and, and deporting them to Russia, which is a war crime. Um, all that, you know, plays into the current situation. And so the Green Party adopted this, um, but it was a very close vote. It's a big controversy in the Green Party. And uh, it's something that I think we're going to be debating as we go forward. You know, the vote on that resolution was 44, 48 to 44 with eight abstentions. Um, in my experience, you know, having been in that debate and witnessing it and listening to it, um, there are a lot of people that are not well informed about Ukraine, but their gut instinct is, you know, the Russians invaded Ukraine. That's wrong. We should oppose that. But they didn't speak up so much because they don't feel they're well enough informed. And then those of us who did speak up, you know, I've been told by Ajama Baraka that I should resign or be expelled and that I'm organizing an enemy formation, the U Ukraine Solidarity Network. And then I'm, a, I'm, I'm in the latte left, which is an old right wing, you know, uh, smear or, or characterization of Hillary Clinton. I mean, that kind of discussion is not what the Greens need because at best it's politically immature. It divides us uh, rather than, you know, having a discussion where maybe we can come to greater agreement. Um, and at worst, it's, it's an intent to div intentionally divide us. So, uh, you know, we got an issue. And uh, so the picture that, you know, Jill Stein there with Putin across the table is a problem. But um, I think the thing that we really got to deal with is, you know, what is our position? Are we as Greens opposed to all imperialisms? Or are we saying uh, 
fighting U.S. imperialism, opposing whatever it does, even if it may be the right thing of giving arms to Ukraine to defend itself, uh, takes precedent over what the Ukrainians, you know, the oppressed nation says. And I think we should start with what oppressed people are demanding and support their struggles. And of course, that struggle between for national liberation by the Ukrainians against Russian imperialism, that's the primary thing. But of course, inter-imperialist rivalries inject themselves into every national liberation struggle. So you got the Western imperialist side and you got the Russian imperialist side. But we shouldn't be choosing between them. We should be supporting the Ukrainian national liberation struggle. And so that's an issue that I think, you know, we're going to be debating in the Greens and in the broader left. It's not just the Greens. It's in the Democratic Socialists of America, the DSA. Uh, it's in the peace movement. Uh, people are divided on this question. And I hope we can, uh, you know, talk about it by referencing, first of all, what the Ukrainians are saying, particularly their progressive movements their socialist movement, their green movement, their environmentalists, their feminists, their trade unions, who all say, give us arms so we can defend ourselves. Um, and at the same time are opposing Zelensky's neoliberal reforms, which are attacking labor and social rights. Um, so they have a two-front struggle, the progressive movements in Ukraine against the Russian invaders and against the Zelensky government's neoliberal policies. Um, and we should be supporting, giving political support to those progressive movements in Ukraine. Um, so there's a lot to talk about there, and I think this discussion is going to keep on going. Actually, I'm going to I'm going to be having a discussion with Jill Stein that the Alameda Greens are hosting on April 9th. And when we got the link to that, you know, we'll talk about it here, and we'll get it sent around. And so. Uh, you can hear the two of us present our perspectives on the war in Ukraine. Amy L. Sachs, Howie, any chance you'd invite Shama Salman on the show to talk about her new organization she's founding in her work to end caste-based discrimination? Um, yeah, I've got a couple other invitations out. Um, I think Shama Sawant would be a, a good guest, interesting. Um, Workers Fight Back is the name of her organization. Um, and it's it's really an extension of Socialist Alternative, the, the socialist organization she's a member of. Um, and I think it's really interesting that she uh, got, uh, I guess, a law passed in, in Seattle to end caste-based discrimination, which is uh, peculiar to the... Uh, south asian uh, community um and that's you know not something that we paid a lot of attention to in this country but it remains an issue and actually shama could explain why it's important better than all of us so i think that's a good suggestion and i will follow up i'm, I'm just waiting to get back dates from a couple people and actually i also want to invite uh, kavita krishnan who's a leftist from india who has been very critical of their left, which in India, they're all communist parties. They're three big ones. And uh, she was a member of the largest, of the most one, the one that was most on the left. But she was critical, you know, while they condemned the Russian invasion, they didn't do anything practically in terms of solidarity with Ukraine or criticize the Modi fascist government, as well as the other communist parties that were pro-Putin. And so she's, you know, off on her own. She's written some interesting articles on why the rest of us should pay attention to Modi as, as a fascist leader of a major country and why, why all this talk from, you know, Russia, China in particular, echoed by, you know, some people on podcasts and blogs in this country, uh, present multipolarity in the world as opposed to U.S. dominance uh, as inherently progressive because the problem is we're going from one imperialist power dominant to multiple inter multiple imperialist powers with inter-imperialist conflict, which is what we had leading up to World War One and uh, World War Two, and that you know was not a solution. 
Uh, some people on the left say multipolarity will create space for socialist development. But if these uh, other big powers are imperialist, capitalist powers, um, all you've done is um, weaken one imperialist power and strengthen some others. And you still have an imperialist world, inter-imperialist conflict, and the likelihood of war. So she has a lot to say on that. That's Kavita Krishna. So I, I'd like to get them both on the podcast. I think that would be uh, interesting and enlightening for all of us. Scout Trooper 164, what do you think of Matt Taibbi being smeared by Democrats in a congressional hearing? Um, yeah, I didn't catch much of that. Um, I don't have much uh, affection for either side of that argument. Uh, Taibbi strikes me as an opportunist. He's getting paid by the richest man in the world to go through those Twitter files. Um, and uh, I just question, you know, where he's really coming from. Uh, he seems to be more interested in uh, attacking the Democrats and, and platforming some people on the far right these days. Uh, and of course, the Democrats are hypocrites in so many things. So, um, that's just my general reaction. I haven't looked into the detail. I, I did catch a little exchange and a little commentary on it, but uh, it really hasn't stuck with me. Um, so that's about all I can say on that. Via email. Comments on connections between today's uprising in France and the Paris Commune, which celebrated its, celebrated its 152nd anniversary today. Oh, that's right. I had forgotten that. Yeah, and a couple years ago, I wrote an article on the 150th anniversary about why the Paris Commune is relevant to the Greens who talk about grassroots democracy. And it's on my campaign website. It was published in uh, Green Social Thought and then the journal Socialism and Democracy. Uh, so you can find it by going either any three of those uh, sites. Um, and we shared it on our social media platforms this morning. Thank you, Chris. I'm glad you remembered this, this anniversary. I was more focused on this demonstration in Washington today in the, I guess it's tomorrow, the uh, 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. So um, now connection between today's uprising and the Paris Commune. Um, yeah, it, it there is not, I don't see this as what's going on in France as a revolutionary movement like the Paris Commune was. I mean, the Paris Commune represented the uprising of what they called the sans-culottes, kind of the the working people uh, who would be include industrial, proletariat, traditional, you know, Marxian working class, but also the uh, people that uh, were laborers, uh, not necessarily in big, you know, industrial enterprises, and the small business people, the shopkeepers and the tailors and the, the people with trades and even professional skills against the old aristocracy. And that's, you know, what they were fighting for was democracy instead of aristocracy. And there was a socialist wing, including uh, the internationalists. That was the Marxists. They were part of the first international. There were Proudhonists. That's after Jean-Pierre Pierre Proudhon. I guess it was Jean-Pierre Proudhon, who was, uh, you call him a mutualist. He's interested in co-ops and free uh, exchange in the market without... Uh, you know, big capitalist ownership, more cooperative type economy. Um, and then, you know, just Republicans, small R Republicans who wanted a democratic republic. Those are like the forces that formed the Paris Commune. But what made it unique, and this goes back to the French Revolution, uh, was that the basis for that communal government, the commune just meant municipality, but that municipal government was based on citizen assemblies and what they called the sections, their neighborhoods. And then the representatives of those sections on the council of the commune 
had to answer to the grassroots democracy at the base. These were citizen assemblies. It was direct democracy and then federation. And the interesting thing about that is both the anarchist wing and the Marxist wing of the socialist movement at that time both said that's what we want, that bottom-up grassroots democracy and federation. And Marx called it the, uh, you know, the, the form of the worker state, uh, although, you know, workers' government is better because he wanted to, in the end, get rid of the state like the anarchists did, the state being a professional body representing a ruling class dominating the working classes. Um, and so they came together in, in saying that was a model. Um, what we see today in France is more protest of a policy, mass protest, and parties from left to right opposing what Macron has done. So I, I think it's different. And they have a parliamentary mechanism to you know, remove P Macron from power if they vote this no confidence vote. So I don't see them forming like the Paris Commune, a dual power alternative to the, to the state. Um, there was some talk during that Yellow Vest movement that drew on, you know, these assemblies that were part of the French revolutionary tradition from the French Revolution through the Paris Commune. Um, but, you know, there, it was talk. It didn't really come to fruition. Scout Trooper 164. Apparently, the Russians, the Russians have drowned a U.S. drone over the Black Sea. Does this spell doom or even worse, detection? Um, I think both sides don't want to let that incident escalate it into something directly confrontational. Uh, we've been uh, having close encounters with the Russians in Syria since the Russians went in a big way in September 2015 and started, you know, bombing the hell out of Syrian cities that were in resistance to Assad. And the U.S. was already there. And they set up deconfliction lines. So, lines. so they, you know, when they were doing military and, and air maneuvers, uh, they'd let each other know and they avoided uh, conflict. And for the most part, that worked. The one time there was conflict was when uh, Wagner mercenaries tried to attack the Marines in, in northwest Syria, Rojava, where the Kurds uh, have set up an autonomous administration. And the U.S. was calling the Russian military people like, who are these people that are coming at us? You know, and the Russian military said, they're not us. It's like they set up Wagner, and Wagner got his ass kicked in that that battle, and uh, a lot of them lost their lives, and they retreated. The, the Marines, they they were they were on an assault against the Marines in, in northwest Syria. Um, I think that was about 2017, 2018. Aside from that, you know, they've avoided uh, conflict in Syria. In fact, the Israelis who who do lots of airstrikes against. Iranian military assets in Syria on both the Russian-controlled area and the U.S.-controlled area, they fly in there or send their missiles in there, and both the Russians and the U.S. let them do it. And then when the U.S. wanted to go into northwest Syria, uh, which is controlled, the airspace controlled by the Russians, to go after al-Qaeda or ISIS, you know, leaders, the Russians let them do it. They had, you know, the U.S. got permission from them. So that these lines of communication... Uh, it looks like we got them uh, from what happened around this drone. And for people that didn't follow closely, basically two Russian jets uh, intercepted and then, you know, started flying near a U.S. drone. The U.S. drone is collecting intelligence on what's going on, on in the ground in Ukraine. And um, they came up from behind it. They dumped oil on it or, you know, jet fuel. And apparently the second uh, jet that did it uh, clipped a propeller. And you, if you look at the videos and some of them stop, you can see the bent propeller. And that caused the drone not to be able to control itself. So the U.S. ditched it in the Black Sea. And right now they think it's under four or 5,000 feet of water. Uh, the Russians have sent a ship there to see if they can recover it. The U.S. doesn't have naval assets in the Black Sea, but they do have allies, they say, who might could, and I think it's probably Turkey, 
Um, I don't think it spells doom. Uh, if by detection you mean the Russians will get some intelligence by getting the, the drone, maybe. I think the chances of that are low. The U.S. says it uh, destroyed whatever intelligence was on electronically recorded, um, which had already been transmitted back to the U.S. anyway, but was ever, what was ever still on the drone. I guess they might could do that. Um, so, no, I think, you know, this indicates that both the U.S. and Russia really don't want to get into a direct fight. And although the, the Russia was being very provocative going after this drone, uh, you know, they don't want to get into a real fight with uh, the West. So, and the West doesn't want to get into a real fight with Russia. You know, they want to let the Ukrainians fight the Russian invaders in Ukraine, and that's the extent of it. So I think that's that's what that, you know, incident can tell us. Violet content boutique. How any comments on the Willow Pipeline project that Biden just approved? Yeah, that just shows you they, they, they don't have a climate policy. They got a fossil fuel policy. That so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which I keep going, build back badly. Um, they have to do a bunch of uh, oil projects before they can permit uh, renewable projects on public land. And this is a case where Biden flat out promised when he's running for president there won't be any oil exploration on public lands. The Willow Pipeline, well, it's a Willow, it's not a pipeline project, it's a drilling project. It will be on uh, this, I forget the formal name of it, it's Arctic Wildlife Refuge. It's public land. He just broke a promise. And uh, actually it was the Interior Department that did that. I did read a little bit that it's controversial within the Biden administration because the environmental movement is making it controversial and the climate movement is, and that's good. Um, but it just shows you that uh, right now, the climate stuff is kind of a messaging thing for the election. And what they're really doing is still pandering to the fossil fuel interests. And even though those interests give more money to the Republicans. So, and the project, you know, should be stopped. Uh, we don't need any more oil extracted from the earth. There's enough in the in the metaphorical pipeline already in wells that have been drilled. And uh, to get us through the transition using oil while we get to uh, renewables. And actually oil, according to David Schwartzman, a green uh, uh, he's a he, by trade, he's a uh, bio, what's the phrase, biogeographer. Anyway, he, he's a climate scientist, let's say that. Uh, who's with the Greens in the District of Columbia? I had him on the podcast early in the year. And, and he says that, you know, we need that oil as the most effective transition fuel to, to power those things we need to power as we get to renewables and we get a self-reproducing renewable energy system. Um, but we don't need to drill for more oil. So this is just something that we should oppose and hopefully stop. Okay, well, we've been going for an hour and uh, that identification to me is usually what we put up when it's time is up. We don't want to keep you too long on any one of these podcasts. So, um, you know, to wrap up, I, I just like to encourage people to consider becoming a member of the Green Socialist Organizing Project. This we set up to continue the education and organizing around the eco-socialist program that we ran on in 2020. And it's now been set up. Uh, the campaign account I had from uh, the last presidential campaign we just closed it yesterday. Um, and some people have been giving monthly donations to that. They're getting an invitation to consider redirecting that donation to the uh, Green Socialist Organizing Project. But uh, please take a look at what we're doing. Consider becoming a member. That will support the online infrastructure. Like, you know, this was StreamYard, and we got Zoom, and we got social media, and 
uh, what else? Email. We got other stuff we need to do so we can communicate. So it's a it's a modest budget, but uh, that's what if you become a member and pay your dues, uh, your dues will support for the Green Socialist Organizing Project. And beyond the educational work we're doing, we want to get uh, big enough and strong enough and have enough capacity to start doing issue campaigns and do you know real activities that support Green Party organizing at the state and local level, party building. So that's what we're trying to do. So you know, take a look and and see you know what our principles of unity are and what's involved. And uh, if you're interested, we'd welcome you to join. And so we'll be back next week. Um, maybe one of these guests will give me that as the date. I, I'm just not sure yet, but uh, we'll have some guests coming up soon. So take care and have a good week.